If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, it is found on page 1046. 1046. If you are turning, you got to pass Philippians and Colossians. If you get to 1 Timothy, you've gone too far. Also, if you get to 2 Thessalonians, you've gone too far. <laughs> so 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. You know, a good attorney does a thorough investigation when they receive a case. They examine everything, documents, reports, they do interviews, they're doing it all in hopes to find clear and irrefutable evidence for the case to be decided in their client's favor. They want clear and tangible evidence, whether it's a document, a video, a testimony of an eyewitness. You see, they're looking for information. They're looking for evidence because evidence substantiates a claim. Evidence is important for it affirms and approves one's confession. You see, in court, it's not merely about what one says, but it's about what one can prove. And evidence helps one proves the point that they're trying to make. Well, in this morning's passage, the Apostle Paul, he speaks with confidence of the salvation of the Thessalonians. And the reason why he does so is because there is clear and visible evidence of their saving faith. There is fruit that testifies to the sincerity of their confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is not merely about what one says, it's also about how they live. Our walk is actually what affirms our talk when we talk about our faithfulness, our confession in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see this morning. And so if, you have, if you're there, if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. So if you're taking notes, this morning's big idea is this, that God's people will show visible evidence of saving faith. God's people will show 
visible evidence of saving faith. And in this morning's passage, we're going to see three visible evidences, and it will be our exhortations. First, we gather. Second, pray. And third, go. Gather, we pray, and we go. So for a little bit of context about Thessalonians and Thessalonica, this city was built by King Cassander in 315 B.C. He named the city after his wife, Thessalonice. It was a, is a major city. It is the capital of the province of Macedonia. Paul, Silas, and Timothy traveled to Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary journey. He came to the city after he was in Philippi. This morning's scripture reading, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 11, describes Paul's time there. As he went to the synagogue on three straight Sabbaths, preached the gospel from the scriptures, by God's grace, people repented and believed in Jesus. There were some Jews, many Gentiles, and many women. They formed the church. Well, Paul was only there for a short period of time, not by choice, but by force, as he was forced out of Thessalonica because of persecution. He didn't have as much time to establish the church as he would have liked. And so he was concerned about this congregation because persecution has arisen, and he was afraid that they, have, they may have commit apostasy. And so he sent his disciple Timothy to the congregation to see how they're doing and to establish them further in the faith. Well, in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, we see that Timothy brought back an, a favorable report of this congregation. By God's grace, this church was doing really well. They were faithful to the Lord. They were loving one another and holding fast to Christ Jesus in the midst of being persecuted for their faith. But they did have their own problems. Problems like sexual immorality and slothfulness. They also had questions concerning death and the, the return of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul, he wrote this letter in response to the report that he received from Timothy. The letter of 1 Thessalonians has a number of themes. I can give us a few. One is Jesus' lordship. The word Lord is mentioned 11 times in five chapters. Another theme is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of every chapter, Paul talks about and refers to Christ's second coming. He also talks about love, hope, holiness, and death. This book can be broken into two sections, whereas in the first three chapters, Paul is encouraging the congregation as he sees fruit of their ministry, of their life, their profession of faith. He recalls his time with them. And in chapters 4 and 5, Paul is exhorting them to obey God's will. Y'all, this is a very encouraging book. As the Apostle Paul is encouraged by how this young congregation was living. And in this morning's passage, we get to see Paul unpack a few visible evidences of saving faith. And the first one is to gather. Look at verse 1. 
Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. The Apostle Paul, he is the author of this letter. He is an apostle, which is one who has witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ and have been commissioned by Christ to speak to people on behalf of Christ with the authority of Christ. Now, Paul is an apostle, but he wasn't one of the original 12. You see, formerly, he was a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church. He hated the church. And yet God, in his grace, revealed the risen Christ to him and saved Paul by the grace of God and transformed his life to where he went from a persecutor of Christ to a preacher of the gospel. He went from being a Christian terrorist to being one of the greatest evangelists. And y'all, this is a testament to the saving and transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where God and his grace makes the dead come alive. He turns haters of Christ to lovers of Christ, from those who are persistently insubordinate to desiring to be obedient. He turns people from wanting nothing to do with Christ to being totally consumed by him. Christ has transformed Paul's life. He is writing this letter, it says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes to the church, not a specific building, but a gathered people. For that's what the word church means. The Greek word ekklesia, it means to assemble. It is a gathering, a local gathering of Christians who have joined themselves together who are committed to one another's progress and growth in Christ Jesus. You guys remember in Jesus' earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 16, he asked his disciples, who do people say that they are? Well, the people got it wrong, and then he asked the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples, says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And afterwards, Jesus makes a promise. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. You see, the church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational covenant community around the globe. People who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church is built through the preaching of the gospel. As the gospel goes forth, as the spirit cuts the hearts of the elect, and they, by God's grace, respond to the gospel with turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. They go public with their faith through baptism. You see, this is what took place in Thessalonica. Paul preached, and by God's grace, people repented and believed, and he gathered them together to become a church. You see, gathering together as a church is visible evidence of saving faith in Jesus. Because we who have been saved by Jesus are publicly identifying with him and being a part of his people. We gather together in his name and his presence is among us. You see, Christians are to be a part of the local church. All who, by God's grace, repents and believes are saved individually, but we're not saved for isolation. Let me say that again. All who, by God's grace, turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved individually, but we are not saved for isolation. 
You see, when God saves us, he unites us to Christ and his people. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and we are to gather with the community of the redeemed. This is part of what it means to be a part of the church. Beloved, our faith is personal, but it is not private. You see, God intends for our faith to be publicly displayed by uniting to a gospel-preaching church and being committed to the gathering. We are to come together in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, And therefore let us not forsake assembling together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, we gather together to worship God, to exalt our king, and to edify one another. Where we sit under the preached word. We sing songs of praise that are truths about God and to one another trying to exhort one another. We read the word. We celebrate the ordinances. In fact, it was in the gathering that this word was to be read. The Apostle Paul says in chapter 5, verse 27, I charge you by the Lord Jesus that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. And that would take place when the church gathers. You see, the gathering is essential. It is for our good. And we don't gather in order to be saved. We gather because we have been saved by God's grace. We want to hear from God. We want to sing to God. And we want to build up the people of God. Beloved, it is foreign to the New Testament to be a Christian in a city where local congregations gather and not be a part of one. That is foreign to the New Testament. For our Christian life is not intended to be lived in isolation, but in the context of a local community where a body knows who you are and affirms your profession of faith and are committed to helping you follow Jesus. How dangerous is it for one soul to be a Christian in a city where congregations gather and not be a part of the church and not be committed to the gathering. Beloved, how will people know and affirm one's profession of faith if they don't unite themselves with a gospel-preaching church? So if you're visiting us this morning and you have not joined the church, this is one of the reasons why we highly encourage church membership. You see, the word, the phrase isn't in the Bible, but the principles are all throughout the New Testament. Friends, you may profess faith in Jesus Christ, profess to be a brother and a sister, but how would a congregation know unless you unite yourself to a gospel-preaching church? This is why we encourage it. You don't necessarily have to join our church, but we want you to join a faithful gospel-preaching church that you may be recognized among the community that you profess to be a part of. God, we see here, he writes to the church of the Thessalonians. He goes on to make known of our union with God and our security in Christ Jesus, as he says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our life and existence comes from God. We are in him. We have union with him because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we trust in Christ, we are adopted into his family. We are 
children of God. As John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13 says, But to all who did receive him, being Christ, who believed in his name, they were given the right to become children of God. You see, we are in God and we are in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul puts Jesus on par with God the Father. And the very reason is because Jesus is God. God is triune, meaning one in essence and nature and three in persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is God the Son in human flesh, where he's truly God and truly man. He is the promised messianic king that the scriptures pointed to. He is the savior of the world who died for our sins. He's the righteous and sinless one. As he shed his blood, he resurrected from the grave. He is exalted at the right hand of God where he rules and reigns. And he promises to return. You see, by faith in Christ, we have union with him. And as we have union with Christ, we are secure in him. We will never be cast out from God or Christ. No one could ever snatch us away from the union that we have with God in Christ Jesus. So with that being said, beloved, we can be for certain of God's love. He has positioned us in him through Christ. We can be for certain of his compassion and care and provision and protection. Never having to doubt because by his grace, he has brought us into his family. And Paul, he couldn't conclude this greeting without alluding to the gospel. He says, grace to you and peace. Grace. Unmerited favor from the Lord Jesus Christ. His kindness that he's bestowed upon us to where he gives us what we do not deserve. Grace describes the very basis of our relationship with God because we have a relationship with God not by works, not by what we have done, but because God has chosen to be gracious towards us. You see, what we deserve is his judgment, and yet he has bestowed upon us his favor. And this grace that comes from God and from Christ, it results in peace. Where we have reconciliation with God through Christ. There is no more beef between us and God. There's reconciliation, love, peace, and harmony because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And God has lavished his grace upon us because he is gracious. So if you're visiting us this morning and you know yourself to not be a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. And I want you to know that God is gracious. He offers peace and reconciliation, which is really good news. Because, friends, your current relationship with God can't be described with grace and peace but enmity. Because you have rebelled against a holy and righteous God. It's not anything that God has done to you, but what you have done to him is the reason why there is enmity. And the very God who you offended by your sin, he offers grace. He offers peace. He did that by sending his son, who became a man who died on the cross for our sins. 
and three days later resurrected from the grave so that all who trust in him will know God's grace, will stand in grace and have peace with God through Christ. Friends, I would implore you this very day to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and be saved. If you would like to, you can talk with any of our members after service. But we love to have these conversations. And we see the first visible evidence in the passage that we see is that we are to be a people who gather because we've been saved by God's grace, called out of the world, called into his son, and we are to gather with those who have been saved. So we want to worship him out of a love for him in response to his love for us. And so gathering is evidence, and so is prayer. Look at verse 2. He says, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. Y'all, behold the affections that, Christ, that Paul has for this congregation. He says that we always thank God for all of you. He ain't showing partiality. He says he's, he's thankful not just for some of them, but for all of them. He knows them corporately and individually. You see, he could put faces to names and new stories because he did life with them and witnessed their repentance and faith in Jesus. Paul gives thanks to God because they are the fruit of his apostolic ministry. He had front row seats to see their repentance, their faith, and then he heard about their progress in Christ. Y'all, this is exemplary for the type of affections that a pastor is to have for his congregation. Where he always gives thanks for each and every member, knowing their stories of how God has saved them by God's grace, knowing where they are in their situations and celebrating the evidence of grace in their life as they are trusting Jesus in specific situations, witnessing their repentance of sins, seeing their encouragement to the body, getting to watch their growth. This is the kind of affections that a pastor is to have, and this is also the kind of affections that members should have for one another, to where we are praying prayers of thanksgiving for one another. See, that each and every person in our directory, we believe that God in his grace has saved and God in his grace has brought them to be a part of Midtown Baptist Church. Seeing that we get to play a role in each other's growth in Christ Jesus, when we see it, it should lead us to thank God for one another all the more. Beloved, when you're praying through the membership directory, are you praying prayers of thanksgiving for one another? As you hear testimonies of people growing, as you see progress in the faith, is it leading you to thank God all the more for that person? and for what he is doing in their lives. Paul not only thanked God for the saints, look what else he did. He says, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. He was interceding for them. Here we see that the subject of Paul's prayers wasn't himself. He was constantly praying for other congregations. You see, and this just wasn't taking place with the Thessalonians. If you were to read all of the epistles, you would see that Paul is regularly praising God and interceding for the saints that he is writing to. 
He prays God and intercedes for churches and ministries for their growth and unity in Christ Jesus. Beloved, do we follow this example? To where our times in personal prayer, are we constantly interceding for members, praying for other churches, praying for our own ministry partners, or are we only praying for ourselves? It's not wrong in and of itself to pray for ourselves. There are specific situations and needs and desires that we have that we want to give to the Lord that God commands us to cast all our cares upon him. The question is, is the scope of most of your prayers limited to yourself? Or are you praying for others? Paul says that he is constantly making mention of the saints in Thessalonica. He's praying for them constantly, and when he does, he always thanks God for them. Praying constantly. Here, in the beginning of the letter, Paul models for them to where at the end of the letter, he will command of them. He prays constantly, and in chapter 5, verse 17, what he does, he commands the church to pray constantly. I love the word constantly because it just communicates this ongoing prayer and talking to God because one loves God. Beloved, will the adjective constantly be used to describe the frequency of your prayer life? You see, for one to pray constantly is to have a proper view of prayer. They don't view it as boring or mundane or monotonous or pointless or fruitless. They see that they're talking to their God and Father. They get to know that he is hearing their prayers and that he will act according to his purposes. We get to commune with the one who loved us and saved us. His throne is a throne of grace. Beloved, are you praying constantly? Are you praying for one another constantly? That's what Paul does, and it's instructive for us. And notice, not just notice, but one may wonder, what did Paul pray when he prayed for the Thessalonians? Well, I would say he prayed for their sanctification. We see this in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 3, verse 13, he says, as he's in this prayer, he includes some of the prayer points. He says, may he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Paul is praying for their growth in Christ Jesus, for he knows that it is a work of God as God works in us and through us for his good pleasure. It's not that we don't put forth any work. It's we put forth effort, but even that effort is God at work. And that effort is all by God's grace. You see, in sanctification, supplication precedes exhortation. In chapter 3, verse 13, Paul prays for their progress in the faith. Paul prays for their holiness. And then in the very next verse, Paul exhorts the congregation to obey God's will. Beloved, praying for one another's sanctification is a great prayer for us to be praying as we pray through the directory. For we should desire each other's growth in Christ. We should desire for one another to not love the world, to not be ensnared in sin, to not love sin, but to love Jesus, to await his imminent return for us to know and be mindful of the glory of Christ. 
Lord, these are some good prayers for us to pray. And if you're trying to figure out, man, I don't know how to pray for each other's sanctification, my encouragement would be is to look at the prayers that Paul, look at the prayers that Paul prayed, and follow those examples. Read through the letters and see where he's making known the prayers that he's praying. And as you pray through the directory, pray those very same phrases for members, knowing that God will answer those prayers in His timing, because God is more committed to our sanctification than we are. And we know that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so these are good prayers that we can pray with confidence, knowing that God will answer. He will sanctify his people. He will grow us in conformity to the likeness of Christ. On that final day, we will be like Jesus. And he'll continue to work that out in us until that final day. So may we pray for each other's so for each other's sanctification. You see, prayer is evidence of saving faith. We're communing with our God and Father. There's communion where there was once enmity. We know that his throne is a throne of grace, and we know that he commands us to pray. If you were to read both the Old and New Testament, you will see that God's people always prayed. He commands us to pray, and so we want to in response to his love for us. And we pray different kinds of prayers. Here we see two of them, prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of supplication. We've seen it modeled in our service where we pray prayers of praise, praising God for who he is and what he has done, prayers of thanksgiving for the work that he has done in forgiving us, and also hearing reports of people's progress and growth and seeing the gospel advance. We pray prayers of supplication because we need God. We need God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. The author Tim Keller would say is that it's in prayer that we treat God as God. You see, a Christian who doesn't pray is like a person who doesn't breathe. It is to be that normal for Christians to pray and that strange for us to not pray. Beloved, do you pray? knowing that his throne is a throne of grace and he commands us to do so because he cares for us. It is good and for our good. And so prayer is an evidence of saving faith and also so is going. Look at verse 3. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, real quick, the reason why I say go is because everything listed in this verse are things that take place outside of the gathering. And in verse 3, we see the reason Paul is giving thanks to God. He's before God in God's presence, and he remembers visible evidence of their saving faith. God's saving work in the Thessalonians has produced visible effects. And that's the case. Because when God saves us, we're no longer in Adam, but in Christ. We have new hearts. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit now dwells within us. We have new affections, and so it leads to a new walk by God's grace to the glory of God. 
We no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died for our sins and was raised for us. Now, we don't live this way in order to be seen. We don't live this way in order to be saved, but we live this way because we have been saved. God has made us new, and so it would be crazy for us to live according to our old nature. We are new. And as we get into it, it's important for us to know that the extent of evidence of saving faith in Christians will be different because there are different maturity levels in the body of Christ. While nonetheless, Christians are to have evidence of saving faith because all have been transformed by the gospel. Paul in this list, he gives three specific evidences. All and all of them, he explicitly identifies the root and he celebrates the fruit. The root we see is faith, love, and hope. These are the foundations that these actions spring from. And the fruit is work, labor, and endurance. Let's unpack all three of these in phrase by phrase. First, he says, your work produced by faith. Beloved, good works are undergirded by faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul didn't say that your works produced faith. It is not do good, therefore I have faith. Good works can never merit salvation. For salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And Christ is the object of our faith. Nonetheless, saving faith is accompanied by works. Saving faith is shown by good works. Scripture is abundantly clear that we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says that him being Jesus redeemed us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Anglican bishop J.C. Rao, he would say this way, he would say faith of adherence comes by hearing, but faith of assurance comes not without doing. And here, Paul says, your, works, your work produced by faith. The word works here is used broadly. As in there are many good works that are produced by one's faith in Jesus, like the advancement of the gospel through evangelism and missions. Think about service to one another or your neighbors in the name of Jesus Christ, tending to and taking care of the least of these. All of these and more display good works. They display our faith. They are good works. They reflect the Lord Jesus as in his earthly ministry, he did good works. And beloved, let me encourage you guys because I have been encouraged by the good works that people in our congregation have done, like our brother Scott, as he has Open Door Memphis, a ministry that is helping out people in communities with building houses. I've heard of evangelism opportunities that many of you are engaged in. Some of you are starting Bible studies in your groups 
with non-Christians and hope to see about, hope to see that people repent and turn from their sin in Jesus Christ. Some of you engage in ministries in the city, loving those who are homeless and more. Beloved, these are good works that produced, that are produced by faith in Jesus. May we champion those and may we persist in those by God's grace. May our posture be one of being zealous for good works that God may be exalted. We pray that we persist in these things. He would go on to say, of your labor motivated by love. You see here, this is manual labor where one works strenuously hard for the good of others. And as you notice the motivation, he says your labor is motivated by love. He didn't say anything about selfish ambition or selfishness. You're not laboring in order to be seen or exalted. And the reason is because love and selfishness are incompatible. See, the former sacrifices themselves for the good of others, whereas the latter sacrifices others for the good of themselves. To love one another is to selflessly give up ourselves for the good of the other without expecting anything in return. This is evidence of saving faith because a heart, there's been a heart change where we love God now and we love what he loves and we love who he loves. And God loves people. So out of a love for God, we love one another. He even commanded it. The great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. This is exerting effort to be a blessing to one another and others. Think about the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. As he saw the person on the road suffering, he was willing to be inconvenienced. As he carried the man, as he nursed him to health, as he spent money without expecting anything in return. Notice that in the Good Samaritan, he didn't provide a bill for that guy when he was done. He just did it out of love because he cared for him. You see, labor motivated by love, this love is a sacrifice for the good of someone else. It has sincere motives. We don't do it to feel better about ourselves, and we don't do it to hold it over that person later. And y'all, this type of love doesn't happen apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We need him. In fact, as we love in this way, we are reflecting him because in the gospel, what did Jesus do? In his love, he laid down his life for us. And we are to imitate him. In fact, he commanded it. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. A new command I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Beloved, do you love in this way? Again, I can encourage the congregation. It's sweet to get to study this text and get to preach it because I believe that by God's grace, there is evidence of labor of love among us. I think about even last year 
how it was a snowstorm and brothers were shoveling driveways of members in our family so that families can get out and drive around. Even last month, how there was an ice storm, a number of you members who had power opened up your homes to other members who didn't. Think about last, this past Wednesday when our sister Carly Calhoun at evening service, how she shared with the congregation how she was without a car for a few days and there were members who willingly let her borrow their car so she can get around. Think about the NBC Google Group email, how needs are being made known, and I'm constantly seeing a return on the email that a need has been met. Beloved, these are labors of love to which I want to encourage us to continue to do that and do that all the more. If we're going to continue in this and exude this, then we must first meditate on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must daily behold Jesus' sacrificial love for us. And we must deny ourselves because this type of love don't come naturally. We still wage war with the flesh. And if we're going to truly love one another, then we got to die. Die to ourselves. Y'all, this is a great thing to pray for one another. As you pray through the directory, pray that our labors will be motivated by love. Paul didn't end there. He had a third one. He says, in your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a persevering commitment to the Lord Jesus throughout any type of adversity that you may face as you await his imminent return. Jesus in his earthly ministry, he promised his exaltation in that he will return. His return specifically, think about Mark chapter 13, verse 32, where Jesus says, Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. You see, we don't know when Jesus will return, but we do know that he will return. He has promised it. He will return. He fulfilled that promise just as he promised his death and resurrection. And guess what he did? He fulfilled it. And so that we can trust with great certainty that our king will return. It's not if, it's when. And so we are to await it. It is more certain than our next breath. It is more certain than the very thing we have planned for tomorrow, especially this afternoon. Y'all, Jesus will return. And he says that there is endurance inspired by hope. You see, we are to persevere to the end because confessing Christ in this life comes with consequences. And the consequence is affliction. We will be afflicted on account of Christ. The Thessalonians, they experienced it as they faced it from people of their own. They faced it from the Jews. They faced it from the government because they confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you were to survey church history, you would see that Christians throughout the ages have always suffered. And we too have suffered and we will suffer. It's not an if, it's a win for us. If we are public about our faith, we will experience some form of persecution. And he says, endurance inspired by hope. We are to be a people who endure. For endurance in the faith is evidence of saving faith. 
Because a genuine saving faith will not depart from Jesus Christ, will not drift from, will not chuck him the deuce and go to the world. They will cling to him to the very end, being willing to sacrifice anything and everything for him, even our very own lives, because Jesus Christ is worth it, because he is good. Saving faith is evidenced by one's perseverance. And beloved, if we're going to persevere, then we need one another. We don't endure in isolation, but in the context of a local community. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that your hearts may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold firm our confession to the very end. And so we're to pray for one another, encourage one another, remind one another of the greatness of Christ, his worthiness, his faithfulness, and that he is coming. Even in our gathering, we're reminding one another that our king is coming. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 talks about encouraging one another in the gathering and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our gathering is a foretaste of what is to come when our king returns. It causes us to fix our eyes upon that day and know for certain that it is coming. Y'all, we need one another. We need his word because everything in this life tries to keep us to only hope in this life. Tries to get us to forget about God and eternity. It's all about the here and now and try to get us to squeeze everything out of this life because they're given the lie that it is all that there is. No commercial or TV show is going to try to remind you that eternity is real and Christ is returning. We get those reminders in the gathering and through reading the word, encouraging one another, pointing one another to that great day that is for certain to come. And so we are to endure persecution by remembering that our king is coming. It's not an if he will come, it's a when he will come. In this life, faithfulness to Christ has awarded persecution and suffering, but on that day, it's awarded a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who loved his appearing. Beloved, our king is coming soon. May we eagerly anticipate his coming. And so here Paul, he explicitly identifies the root and he celebrates the fruit. He encourages them in visible evidence of saving faith. And though he encourages the congregation, notice who he thanks for the evidence of it. He didn't thank the congregation. He thanked God. For he says, we always thank God. And the reason why he thanks God is because God is the source of our salvation. The works produced by faith, the labor motivated by love, and the endurance inspired by hope doesn't happen apart from God being at work in us and through us. And so we are to be grateful to God for what he has been doing in us and what he is doing, 
He is, he is the one who is at work. And so he gets the praise. Y'all, he gets all of the flowers. It is his work in us and through us for his glory, which is why we need to pray all the more, which is why we need to plead for him to work. And we work in full dependence, not upon ourselves, but upon him. Beloved, our salvation is a work of grace. The visible fruit that is evident should lead us to praise God all the more. Y'all, may we be a people who continually show evidence of our salvation in our gathering, in our praying, and in our scattering as we have good works produced by faith, labor motivated by love, and endurance inspired by hope, knowing that one day our faith will turn to sight. Our king is coming soon. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we praise you for your grace, for your saving and sanctifying work in our lives is a work of grace, not works. It is what you are doing. Father, we pray that your work in us would persist all the way until you call us home or your son returns. May our gaze be set upon the Lord Jesus. That we know that those who hope in him will not be put to shame. May our love for you abound as we behold your love for us. God, help us. It's in Christ's name. Amen.